I think we are now at a turning point uh, on this, and 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 this is something I've spent my last ten years of my life really trying to do whatever I can to push this agenda. We are doing far too little, far too late, and I think we're just turning a corner where where basically both politics and business understand and we need to do far more. Lasse Christoffersen is the president and CEO in Valenius Willemsen. Before taking over Valenius Willemsen, Lasse worked for Torvald Klavenes for 15 years and was their first company CEO from outside the Klavenes family. In this episode, we discuss how Lasse ended up in the shipping industry, his process for making big business and life decisions, and how he hopes to make a positive impact and contribution to a more sustainable world. This episode is brought to you by Nordshipping. Nordshipping is at the center of the oceans. This is where the maritime and ocean industries meet every two years from across the world to connect, collaborate and do deals to unlock new business opportunities. This is your arena for ocean solutions. See you at Nordshipping in Oslo, 6th to 9th of June 2023. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vorname or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vorname. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vorname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. So, Lasse, first of all, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. So, we have started a new year and you recently expressed some concerns you had about, you know, the current business climate and policymakers. Could you just give a brief summary of why you hope 2023 would not be the same as 2022? Well, I think uh, 2022 was a year of divide. Um, and I think that goes both for uh, for politics in general, but also between politics and business, in particular in Norway, uh, we're talking now. And, and um, uh, the tradition in Norway has been that we have very close cooperation between uh, authorities, uh, employers and employees. And we sit down and we discuss and we find good solutions. And through that, um, we find solutions that are um, workable for all. And not least, we create um, a predictive and, and a uh, and a um, environment without too much uncertainty. That changed in 2022, um, both the rhetorics, but also the actual politics. Um, and um, and there was quite a few things that happened on the political side that came a bit out of the blue. Uh, without the necessary process, uh, sending signals that created huge frustration and huge uncertainty. Um, and I felt that we left 2022 where business shouted at politicians and politicians said that uh, business is not contributing enough and only complaining, uh, to put it very tabloid. Um, so my piece was basically to say that we can't continue with that uh, shape and form of the dialogue in 23 we need to find together because we have far more important things to do and, and i'm particularly thinking of the climate change and the role we have in decarbonization let's rather spend the efforts there than on um, talking about divides 
If you just go all the way back uh, at your sort of start, what was the reason why you got interested in shipping in the first place? Was it from a very young age or did you just stumble upon it by accident? Yeah, good question. I, I grew up on Atske outside Bergen. Uh, we, uh, I've been in a boat since I was a small boy and and, uh, and I've always had this connection to to the sea uh, on the boat. I was fishing and, and so on. So, so the reality is that when I was looking for a study, um, I had no clue what to become. I mean, I was <laughs> looking at everything. And then somebody told me that uh, uh, that the technical university in, in Trondheim would be good. Um, and I had the grades to come in. And then I said, okay, fine. And then what do I study? Well, maritime, I have a, I understand maritime. Let's do that. So it was very arbitrary uh, in a way. And then through my studies, it became clear to me that um, that you could either go in the direction of oil and gas or in shipping. And to me, um, shipping was the most interesting part. So eventually, um, world trade, how uh, shipping basically connects the world uh, and drives economic uh, progress and, and, and divide in many ways, really interested me. So... It's partly, I think, because of the interest for the sea from my youth and also my interest for um, global trade and politics that really meets in shipping. After you, you, when you finish your studies, how high would you say your ambitions levels were at that time? Or were you just trying to figure out if you can find a good company to work in? Or did you have like a very sort of planned out career trajectory that you wanted to embark on? I, I have never... And this is true. I've never, ever in my life had a career plan. Um, and I don't think you should. To me, it's, um, you know, it's, it's here and now and, and what's next. That's really been, uh, been my focus. Well, when I uh, left studies, I thought I will become a shipbuilder. That was my specialty. And, and I was looking at, was working together with some shipyards on the West Coast of Norway. Um, then I met my wife at the studies. She got a job in Oslo and I realized that there are no ships built in Oslo. So then I had to just find an employer. And uh, with a lack of, uh, of uh, clarity to that, uh, I knew DNV was in, in Oslo. So I applied there and I got a job, not in shipping, but in risk analysis of offshore installations. So very different. But then I quite quickly uh, tuned that into uh, working with shipping after a couple of years within DNV. Um, and since that, with an exemption of one year, uh, I've been working towards shipping or in shipping and logistics supply chains um, for yeah, my career. Can you tell me a bit about the, the experience you had in Klavnes? Because obviously you stay there for a long time. What was the highlight from that experience? Oh, many. I joined, I was there for 15 years uh, and as a CEO for, for 11. Uh, and um, to me, um, there were two main uh, themes I was working with in Klavnes. Uh, one was around culture. How do we develop a culture of innovation and, uh, and uh, um, business development? which had been the, the case in Klavnes back in the days, but but uh, I would say during the, up until 20, 2008 with the financial developments and the financial crisis, um, many companies became more financial than industrial. Um, so I really, when I took over in 2011, it was important for me to find back to our industrial roots. 
uh, and create a culture that could develop the company. The other part was that I was very, well, I, I had this epiphany in a way that that uh, it was around digitalization and, and decarbonization values will be created. Uh, so I really, really wanted to shift the platform of, of Clavenus into that, away from traditional just owning ships and, and, and being very ship and steel oriented to become much more knowledge, innovation and technology oriented. So um, when you take over as a CEO, it takes a couple of years in my experience to really find your ground. But then as of 2014, we systematically worked on exiting businesses that either created value in terms of digital technology or because they were, uh, it has a significant competitive advantage on decarbonization. Um, so through that period, I'm, I'm quite proud that we were able to, I would say, uh, shift the business platform of Clavenet from traditional industrial shipping into businesses that purely focused on using digital technology data and or creating substantial uh, climate uh, value. And, and uh, I'm very, very proud of the company, the business, and not least the team I left uh, last year. It was really hard to leave, uh, but uh, after 11 years as CEO, I think it was uh, time for somebody else to pick up the baton. Yeah, that's very interesting because that was the sort of the next question. What was the thought process like when you had the opportunity to join Valenius Willemsen? Because, I mean, how do you how do you take big decisions in your career and life? Do you have any frameworks or is it a gut feeling or is it like you said, given the time period, you thought, OK, maybe this is the correct time to do something new and take on a new challenge? Um, these big decisions, um, I always spend time on and I take a rather structured analysis and I use people around me. Um, I'm lucky to have a, a very clever wife. So I always take these discussions together in our uh, family board. Um, and we need to do this together. Same I did when I uh, joined Clavenus, when I took up the post as CEO in Clavenus. These big decisions, I do it together with uh, with uh, my wife, but, but also, of course, listening into people I trust a lot. Uh, specifically on Valenius Willemsen uh, was not unlike the one with Clavenus because when they contacted me in May 2021, which is quite a while back, um, I said, no, I'm not ready. Uh, I was too committed to Clavenus and, and we were in the middle of a uh, structural change on how we run the company, which was a very natural change, but still I felt very much commitment to that. So um, this was the headhunter. They talked in May and in June and in August and September. And uh, every time they called, I said, mm, I'm not sure if this is, I can do this. And then eventually when I started to an analyze the decision, I realized that what stopped me was really the pain of leaving Clavenus. I was never in doubt that Valerius Willemsen was a, the right, opportunity for me now and I could come back to why but but that was I always saw this as a very exciting opportunity but I just couldn't get beyond the pain of leaving Clavenus and my good friends there uh, so it was at when it was when I realized that that pain will only be worse in a year or two uh, I realized that I have to take that out of the equation and only think of 
Um, one, will you leave Cloudiness? And yes, I will not be the CEO for 20 years. And two, is this something you really want? Yes. Okay, then you just have to take the timing that's presented for you. And uh, so I did. Uh, but it was uh, painful. Um, and I must admit that um, I felt a couple of tears when I uh, sat down and told it to people because it's Cloudiness um, was much more than just a job for me. Very, very interesting. So just obviously you, you have joined a, a huge organization with a lot of employees, a lot of operations all around the world. Yeah. How How is the plan sort of like the first few months? How do you tackle that? Because there's a lot of ways you can go about it, but I guess to have a, a, a good plan to start is, is, is interesting. And I guess there's many different ways you can approach it. But I think already talking to you that you had maybe a structured approach on how you want the first few months to be in a new company and a new challenge. Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> so um, I had, I mean, so there were basically a couple of phases. One was the phase before I joined and I was very clear that I wanted to have some slack between being out of the day-to-day -day in Cloudness and before I got into day-to-day -day here. And I used that very actively to talk to a lot of people, both inside Valenius Williamson and outside Valenius Williamson about the company. Um, because that's a unique time you have to get to understand an outside-in perspective uh, of an organization, understand the key elements of the organization, key people in the organization, at least. So I spent quite a bit of time, actually, before I joined to create a picture. So And, and then... I also used um, a team here at Wolenus Williamson to make a onboarding plan. Yeah. So when I joined, I had a quite detailed plan for the first three months. Um, and my main goal and, and the main process was I wanted to meet all the top three uh, levels in the organization. And I wanted to physically meet as many as possible. And I sat down and had individual so I, I, we counted, I think I have met with more than 300 people, uh, most of them face-to-face, -face, uh, either digitally or physically. So I spent the first month really to get to understand the organization and the people, um, not that much the business and not that much the customers, a little bit of customers. But to me, it was really important to get to understand how does this organization work who are the people that really drive this organization? And, and um, where are the talents that I can uh, really build on in this organization? So I would say phase one in the organization was really around um, people. And then the second phase after, I mean, from the fall last year was to start with two main themes. That was strategy. How do we position this company uh, strategically? And second was culture. How do we work on, on, on building on the culture we have and tuning on that so it's a culture that fits with our strategy? And um, I would say these are the two themes I've been working mostly with. Um, and we're now just about next week, uh, Monday, and the full week, we'll have a strategy week. So then we're launching the updated strategy to the whole organization through various uh, presentations, TV shows, and, and other stuff. So. Now we're in phase three. 
given your experience, you know, in the companies you've been and also uh, in terms of all the board positions you've had, do you have any, any pitfalls you've seen CEOs can do when they take over a new job that it's very good to avoid not doing? Uh, absolutely. There's many, and I won't say that I've seen people failing in it because I've not seen that many from from close and, and those I've been lucky to work with has done a great job. So, but I think um, if you ask me in general, I would say that the, the biggest pitfalls is one is always to come from the outside and believe that you understand this, um, the organization, the business. Um, that's a big pitfall. Um, and I really totally disagree to those who say you need a 100-day plan and have a plan after 100 days. It take, takes months and years to really understand the business. So that humbleness when you come into an organization to understand that you don't really understand, you conceptually understand, but not the details. I think that's one. Um, and I think another is that you don't really understand that the business is about people not about ships, not about money, not about customers, not about shareholders, it's about people. So really to start with reaching out to people, uh, understanding people and, and um, connecting with people, um, I think um, that's another pitfall. So, so I would say lack of humbleness and uh, lack of people focus would probably be the two main general pitfalls, I would say. Sounds like good ones. And just when we, if we can talk a bit about your leadership philosophy as well, I, I saw you were quoted that you have, you have no need to copy anyone else. Can you share a bit about how you have evolved your leadership philosophy? And do you have a clear philosophy that now that you're very conscious of in your work day to day? I've been asked many times what my leadership philosophy is. <laughs> my problem is I can't really answer. <laughs> um, I... Uh, so my leadership philosophy is basically me. I, I don't have a technique. I don't have a framework. I don't have a methodology I've learned. What I've learned is that what you see is what you get. That's me. And it's my beliefs, my values, uh, my convictions. And I, um, so, so that that's really the core of it. And then there are, of course, a couple of things that are really close to me and then becomes part of my leadership philosophy. And one is I really hate hierarchies. I hate politics. And I need total honesty. There's no news I cannot hear about. Uh, and, and I'm very clear that uh, if I've not heard about it, don't assume I know it. So this openness uh, and informal, flat organization, that's really me. So you don't see me walking around in a suit and with a tie and, and sitting locked into CEO office. Um, I really believe in, 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 in connecting with people. Then I also truly believe that my main role is to point direction and be very clear on where we're going and use all the talent in the organization to figure out how we get there. So in a way, I'm, I believe in being, it's my job to set the direction and the priorities. And then it's my job to release the talent in how to deliver on that. So, so 
a pragmatism in how, but a clarity on what. I think that's uh, one element. And then also, I think you can never communicate enough. Uh, and communication is both ways. So one is, of course, me talking about strategy, people, customers, and so on, but also sitting down and listening and getting inputs. Uh, so I hope uh, I hope I'm seen as a clear communicator, but also uh, an active listener. So those are probably some themes without being a clear leadership philosophy. I wouldn't be able to write a book to put it like this. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And also when you say that you expect everybody to share their news, whether good or, good or bad, I guess it's also super important for you to do the same the other way around. So you create that trust in the organization that it goes both ways. Like you can also be share whatever news you have on your mind, good or bad, I guess. Yeah. And, that, and that's my promise to my leaders, to my team, to, to this organization and to everybody else. Uh, what you see is what you get. Uh, and if I'm happy, I will tell you. If I'm happy, I will tell you. If I have a problem, I will tell you. Um, and then I expect the same back. And, and I think you can only get that if it's a two-way uh, trust. Let's get a bit over to, to the market you operate in, the rural market. So obviously, it's a niche market. What is the best way to introduce the market and the market dynamics that you operate in? Because it's a very unique type of market, I guess. Yeah, it's unique, but maybe not so unique. So basically, we bring the car home to you. We bring the excavator out on the uh, on the construction site. We bring the harvester to the fields in Brazil. We bring the batteries into the grid in California, from A to Z. Uh, this organization, Valenus Williams, we're not just a rural shipping company. We are a shipping, logistics, and increasingly a technology company. Um, so uh, the example we can use here in Norway is that uh, there are a lot of new uh, electric vehicle entrants coming in, and they don't have advanced supply chain organizations. So for them, like NEO, which we have had uh, a strong cooperation with, uh, we are doing everything. We are picking up the cars in, uh, in, um, in China. We bring them to the terminal. We clear them out of China. We bring them to Europe. We, we do processing on them, meaning that we are doing the last pits of production, actually, on, on the cars. Bring them to, to Norway, distribute them up to the distribution center. And if need be, we can bring it back to your door. So, so we are orchestrating from end to end. Uh, and and uh, in the US in particular, in, in Mexico, we're even inside the factory. So we are doing the last 5% of processing of the cars before they leave the factory. So we are end of the factory line. Uh, we are transport, we are terminals, we are processing and imports, we, we are shipping, uh, and we are logistics. So. Um, our market is basically everything that rolls on wheels, everything from cars to uh, to huge, large equipment like um, trailers and tractors and, and excavators, and also specialized cargo that doesn't fit anywhere else. Large, heavy stuff that we bring around the globe. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding people tend to make about the market? Um... Well, the biggest misunderstanding about this market uh, is probably, as you started with, that it's a niche market. You know, this uh, <laughs> uh, it's a big market. We are moving millions of cars and, and equipment every year. Uh, 
and then maybe more relevant, what is the biggest misunderstanding people have of our company is that we're a pure shipping company. Uh, we are not the pure shipping company. We are a proud shipping company. We're the biggest shipping company in this railroad sector. Uh, but shipping is one key element in what we deliver to customers, which is end-to-end -end solutions. We help them to manage supply chains from A to Z. If we if we look a bit about the um, the market development, obviously there has been a lot of bad years. If you go back in history, and these last years have been fantastic. How would you sort of sum up, if we can call it a cycle, and where do you think we are in terms of what will drive this forward? Is it as good as it can get right now, or do you see a bigger trend where you think this is going to be good times for a long time coming? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, what I've learned in shipping is uh, that it's a very cyclical market and you should be very careful in predicting these markets because there are so many things. And we are part of geopolitics. We are part of uh, economics. We're part of trade politics. There's so many things that happen on this scene that it's really hard to predict. Um, and um, so, so let me start with that caution. Um, then down for us, what really happened in the world, which also hit us, uh, was that we came in to COVID with uh, more or less fair balance in the markets. We have had many years of oversupply on the, in particular in shipping, but we had a fair balance into COVID. Then everything stopped in 2020, uh, early part of 2020, where the world shut down. And then as you know, people stopped spending money on, on, uh, on experiences and bought equipment. So there was a big trend and that uh, over to buying stuff. And that's either coming with container ships or with uh, roller ships. So, so the demand suddenly picked up by the late 21 and then into 22, um, both for cars and for tractors and everything. So through 2022, we had very strong demand for our services um, and uh, increasingly so. That also unfortunately led to congestion, meaning that ships sitting and waiting in port because there's not enough capacity to push this through the system. So in a way, um, 2022 was both a, a year where we had a very strong demand for export of, of equipment, uh, but also unfortunately some capacity stuck in congestion around the world. So in that sense, it was a very strong market. Despite the fact that in the car industry, we had uh, relatively low production volumes uh, because we have had this situation of lack of semiconductors in the world. Uh, so just as uh, an illustration, in 2019, there were around 95 million cars produced in the world. In 2022, it was 80 million cars produced. Uh, and that was not due to lack of demand. They just couldn't produce more. Uh, but luckily for us, the exports were quite consistent. So um, what suffered was basically domestic markets. Um, so there's no doubt that there are clouds on the horizon now in terms of macroeconomic. Uh, I'm sure that people are thinking twice to buy a car these days. But we have a real big pent up demand because we've not been able to produce enough cars for a couple of years. So we think that uh, structurally, uh, both the demand for transporting cars and heavy equipment um, has a lot of catching up to do over the next years. 
but in a very short term, of course, there is some more uncertainty in 2023. How will this um, macroeconomic situation affect our markets? Um, but we have said that uh, uh, 2022 was a fantastic year for us. And, um, and we think that um, the fundamentals still look solid for us going forward. But but maybe just just a point if if I if I understand you correct that even though the production level decreases a bit the car exporters still want to export their cars to Europe because they want to maintain their brand position or they think that it's important to get the cars out right so there's sort of that's a good situation I guess for you that they tend to prioritize that yeah there's a couple of couple of trends uh, or or factors that has has um, resulted in, in in maintaining high export volumes one is exactly as you said a market share. Uh, second is that uh, normally, uh, well, the, the car, as they have not been able to produce as many cars as they wanted, they have produced more the high value cars, uh, meaning the more expensive models and the high accessory models, which tend to be more exported than the cheaper models that typically are sold and distributed locally. Um, and then one last uh, trend, uh, which is really important, that's the electric vehicle revolution that we're seeing. This sale of electric vehicles around the world has surpassed any expectation from any producer. Um, so the rate of change of, of, of people moving into electric cars is really fast. Uh, and also the entrance of China as a very successful uh, exporter of electric cars uh, has added to this. So the, China, the volumes out of China during 2022 really grew fast. So it, it, it's both um, uh, it's both the the prioritization of high end cars, the extreme growth in EVs and particularly out of China, uh, that maybe are the main drivers for this being a strong market despite the muted global production. And if you look forward, what will be the, sort of the most important indicators that you will follow with biggest interest that you think will have a you know a lot of, lot to say about the current market development? Um, I will, um, let me split that into four. Um, number one is geopolitics. Uh, for us, uh, we are, um, you know, a, 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 the spider in the web when it comes to distributing goods globally. And, and we have had for 50 years now a development where the world has come closer together, trade has grown, and we have thought that through trade, uh, we will grow closer as uh, a global community. Following the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, following the, the trade wars and the technology wars between the US and China, we now realize that that's not the case anymore. We see an increasing regionalization. And, uh, and for the first time in my life, at least, a time where we see maybe globalization in terms of trade um, and production is turning a corner and maybe uh, becoming less. Uh, active. So for me, watching the situation between China and the US and Europe, and whether that becomes, today, it's, I would say it's a technology war. It's, it has, it's increasingly a trade war. If it becomes a military war, of course, it will have huge implications on the globe. Second, I would say is uh, is um, sustainability and in particular climate. Um, I think we are now at a turning point uh, on this, and 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 this is something I've spent my last ten years of my life really 
trying to do whatever I can to push this agenda. We are doing far too little, far too late. And I think we're just turning a corner where, where basically both politics and business understand and we need to do far more. So the second thing to watch is, are we getting a price on carbon, which is really changing how we make decisions? Um, and I think we are just about to turn that corner. Thirdly, is really around the industry we're part of, um, where um, focusing on on the car side, but also on the on the equipment side, that is the electrification and how that changes market dynamics, um, and whether this will be a free market access development or whether we will see local and regional uh, production and consumption. We're already seeing in the US that they are uh, giving subsidies to cars and batteries produced in the US. We see significant investments going into local production of batteries and semiconductors. Um, this is more a long-term trend, but obviously that's, um, that's one to follow for us. Uh, we still think there will be global trade, um, but the trade patterns could change. And then last but least, of course, is our own industry, and in particular on shipping. And, and if you want to understand how a market develops, you need to understand the supply side, how many ships are coming into the market. That has been underinvested for many years, and now the order book is picking up, and we now have 20% worth of the world fleet in order over the next few years. Um, so obviously, that requires the, um, the market to continue to grow. Um, but I would say that's the fourth element to watch the uh, supply side and the fleet development. That's also the, the perfect segue to the next topic, which is, you know, fleet investments and the risk you're seeing there to, to take those decisions. Because obviously it seems very complicated and hard to know what is the right decisions in terms of which technology to invest in and what time horizons, et cetera. How has that process been? Because I know that's one of the things you have been working on for quite some time. So can you summarize some lessons and also where do you think we are headed in terms of, in terms of that? Um, yeah, the summary of the lessons is, is quite simple. That is that this is uh, what leadership is about, making decisions in uncertainty. I mean, uh, so decisions that can be uh, easily calculated and concluded, you don't need uh, leadership to make them, right? So this is uh, this is really what leadership is about. How can you, uh, it's a combination of facts and conviction. And you need to create your own conviction. Say, what do you believe will be the solutions of the future? Because we don't know. Um, particularly when it comes to, um, when it comes to um, shipping and decarbonization, uh, in general as a company also, but in particular on shipping, I think you can have two principal strategies. You can either have an adapt strategy or a shape strategy. Uh, adapt meaning that you wait for the market to be mature before you start investing in uh, low or no emission um, solutions. My guess is that will take 10 plus years. So if you have an adaption strategy at the moment, you most likely sit back and do very little. If you consider yourself being a leader, and you, as I do, personally feel that I want to make a difference, you choose a shaping strategy. That's what we have done in Valenus Willems. We believe that based on our size and our conviction and also our personal commitments, we would like to show the way on how we can decarbonize this industry. Um, and, uh, and 
that leads into how we think of new buildings. And we are now looking into the next generation of vessels. We have already communicated that we will not order a vessel that is not ready, that, that is not ready to be zero emission or at least carbon neutral. Um, and the problem has been that it's been really hard to find uh, reasonable deals with shipyards because last year there was a real frenzy on ordering new vessels. So we're working actively with this. We're working actively with the next generation vessel. Um, and uh, we're also having a, I think, unique concept development of something we call Orcel Wind, where we have a going into details on a concept where we will use wind as the primary source of, of uh, propulsion. Huge sails on top of the vessel. And we just won a, a significant support from EU on developing this technology together with our partners, um, which we will trial on existing vessels first. Uh, but we have a concept ready or cell wind that will have that as a main propulsion system. So we are willing to take risk and we are willing to uh, to move before technologies are uh, mature. Um, and um, in my view, this tran energy transition away from fossil fuels will happen in, in three phases. Uh, we're now coming into phase one where we can start to scale more on the biofuel side and, and carbon neutral stuff. The next phase is likely uh, associated around methanol and other uh, intermediary fuels. And then we will, in maybe 10 years or so, have a scaling phase uh, where these will be commonly available energy sources and technologies to all. Uh, and my personal view is that uh, ammonia is now the fuel that will likely scale in the long run. Do you believe that in the end game, there's one particular solution? So do you think it's about being as flexible as possible and considering all options at all times and also see how the development goes? I think today to bet on one would be very risky because nobody knows. Um, on the other side, you need to have some basic convictions on, on what will happen. Um, will we have one solution in the end? Absolutely not. Uh, because a short distance shipping is very different from long distance shipping. So for you will have uh, ferries running on batteries, short short sea vessels running on batteries. You will have uh, short regional maybe doing more hydrogen. Uh, but what we do know is for everything uh, that carries big uh, loads of cargo and traveling large distances, um, the only source of energy we can think of today is related to hydrogen. And then hydrogen uh, produced by, by renewables eventually. Hydrogen as a gas or a liquid would most likely not be the solution. It doesn't have the energy density needed for ships or, and, and deep sea ships. So it will be one vector of hydrogen. Um, and, and very simplicity told, if you combine hydrogen with CO2, you get methanol. That is well-proven technology that we can roll out within a couple of years. Uh, and it's rather uh, uncomplicated, I would say. The only problem is that it's still CO2, but it's captured CO2. So we don't think it scales. Uh, the other way you can do it is to combine uh, this hydrogen with nitrogen, uh, nitrogen, and then you get ammonia. And uh, nitrogen is 70% of the air. It's much easier to capture. And when you burn it, you just release that nitrogen back to the air. 
So that's more a scalable solution. The issue with ammonia is, of course, that it has a bit less energy density, but it's a very dangerous carbon. It's uh, acid, uh, it's uh, toxic, it's corrosious. So um, there are many other problems we need to solve. Um, so, but I think we will have a, the majority of the deep sea fleet in the world will run on some vector of hydrogen. Uh, my view, most likely, as we see today, is ammonia, while more the short sea fleet will have a variety of, of technologies. Yeah, makes sense. And also just to, to add on, like, obviously we're talking about huge technology shifts right now, but you're also doing a lot of stuff on software, et cetera, to optimize, you know, every voyage, et cetera, which I know you also work quite a lot on, which is an important work as well, I guess. Yeah, um, the way we talk about it is that that we need to work both on energy uh, efficiency and energy transition. What I just described earlier now was energy transition. How do we transition away from fossil fuels? What we have spent a lot of time on and still will and will continue to do is on energy efficiency. How can we drive down the efficiency, the energy need of our fleet? And we do everything from looking at physical uh, installations on the vessels, changing everything, all the way up to using uh, artificial intelligence on board the vessels. Uh, we have a product called Deep Sea AI, where we are now having all the vessels fully censored, and they have live decision support on what is the optimal speed and route and everything to take at any given time. And of course, we have had technologies for this before, but not AI enabled. And we see that that has a huge potential. And um, the reason why we could do that is that we have invested a lot in what we call connected assets. So we have basically digitized all our vessels, uh, sensorized them and connected them. So we don't know have the full infrastructure, both on the vessels, to the shore and in our, uh, and in our management so that we can roll out technologies quite easily in the fleet. Just uh, another topic that I would like to touch a bit upon is, is your hiring process, because in order to do great things, you need great people on board. So what is your what is your hiring philosophy? What do you look for when, when you're in the hiring process and you want to get or bring good people on board? Yeah, of course, uh, in a big company like this, that, that varies a lot. Um, and uh, the majority of our people are production workers sitting out on terminals in processing centers and doing manual work. And then these are non-skilled labor, many. And then, of course, you look for, for the right attitudes more than experience. Uh, while you, if you go all the way through to the connecting assets, you really need experts in data science and, and everything. So it's a big variety of competencies, everything from seagoing experience to logistics experience to technology uh, and so on. Personally, when I recruit, I look for passion and talent. And then I believe uh, people with passion and talent and that has the smartness needed, they will learn things fast. Um, so um, now I'm in the middle of a process of um, setting up what we call the decarbonization task force that will work across the company together with me to drive the energy transition. Um, I'm now recruiting a leader into that team. And, and, and um, in the ad, that was exactly what we said. Um, the most important thing is talent and passion. And then uh, if you know anything about decarbonization, that's a benefit, but not a prerequisite. Do you have any favorite questions you, you, you tend to ask in those conversations when you have uh, interviews? 
the most important for me is to understand why they think this is uh, an exciting opportunity and why they see this as a natural uh, uh, challenge for them. So it's really to understand motivation. Um, of course, we talk about qualifications, but motivation is really key to me. Um, I happen to, in the role I'm in now, I only recruit on leadership levels. So of course, uh, leadership uh, thoughts are very key. Um, and uh, to me, safety, compliance, uh, and diversity and inclusion are really key parameters for, for leadership. So I have, in all my interviews, a quite extensive discussion around how they work on safety, compliance, diversity, and inclusion in their leadership. Very good. We just have some quick fire questions to round up, plus if it's okay with you. So we, we got some questions from Twitter as well. And, and one was very particular, but I would like to just ask it is because it was a question about how safe it is to ship thousands of electric cars on big ships because I haven't seen them been some stories about it. Is there anything you can say about that? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a very relevant question and something that we are working with. Um, and there are two elements to electric cars. One is that they have uh, energy in the batteries on board. And second is their weight. So there's also um, issues around deck strength and stability because they have a different uh, weight profile than traditional cars. We are looking into this uh, constantly and we have cargo uh, uh, policies uh, for this, of course. Uh, we are setting a limit to how much charge they can be in the battery. Um, and, and fire is something we are really concerned about uh, in, on our vessels. And, uh, and the, um, the size of the fire is, is linked to the energy that is captured in the battery. So now uh, we are setting clear limits that they need to reduce the charge of the cars that we have on board. Um, and for instance, for, for uh, traditional cars and for used cars, we have a requirement that you need to disconnect the battery. Um, and we, uh, we have not had big issues with fires from electrical, new electrical cars. But traditionally in our industry, we had uh, quite some fire issues around um, uh, used cars and, uh, and, uh, and batteries, not electric vehicles, but traditional vehicles. Uh, so for the last couple of years, we have had a policy of disconnecting the batteries and had had no fires actually related to it. So we think that our experience uh, and our policies uh, can help us to manage this risk. Uh, but I will not underestimate it's a new risk. It's significant risk and something we take very seriously. Next question is what you typically like to read and if you have any favorite books. Oh, uh, I read many different things, but I'm I'm not a fiction person. I'm reading more of the uh, of the books talking about life uh, and and reality. I would say. Uh, I think maybe the book or the book series uh, that has made. The, deepest um, impact on me is uh, the writer is Carl Frode Tiller and the book series is Incircling, one, two, and three uh, in Norwegian. And uh, I don't have the time to go into the details, but both the, the idea of the books, um, his language, the way he writes, but also his insight into the human minds and how we communicate and how we don't communicate is um, really, really made an impression. I think these books are fantastic and uh, I hope more people will read them. 
I will definitely check them out. What's your favorite activity to recharge your batteries? Oh, that's um, two things. Music and uh, outdoor life. Uh, music is very important to me. And uh, I spend a lot of time listening to music. I spend a lot of time going to concerts and festivals. Um, actually, uh, I did, when I just made a final decision for this Valerius Williamson job, it was at the rock concert at Rockefeller in my leather jacket and with my bear. And uh, I thought, this is now I'm at my best. So this is the time to decide. Um, and then the other one is to get outdoors, uh, whether it's just, you know, working in the garden or going for a run. Um, and maybe the perfect activity would be go skiing in, in, in the mountains around our cabin. Then I'm very close to, to a perfect day. Yeah, perfect. Just the last question then. Any advice for people who want to make an interesting career in the shipping industry and also... What do you hope will be your legacy or, or your footprint when you have Ooh. made your contribution? <laughs> no, I've never thought about that, to be honest. But I'll, I'll let me reflect while I speak on the other. My advice is not to have a plan. Not to have a fixation on a future goal or anything like that. Um, focus on the next opportunity. Focus on really using your talents. Focus on having a boss that helps you develop. Focus on being part of an environment where you can uh, use, you know, get out the best of yourself and say yes to the next opportunity. Um, don't think you can plan a 30-year uh, life. Uh, I joined, my first job was with DNV. I said I would never work for DNV. I, I thought I would never work there. They're technical. In a department I didn't know existed, um, I came into Valenius Williamson without really knowing that I would ever get here. So... There are a lot of coincidences. So career is about as long as you make sure that you are happy with your you know, colleagues, you're in a company that you believe in, and you always look at what's the right opportunity for me now, that's the most important thing. Don't think two steps ahead and say, it's smart to get on the CV and stuff. I don't believe in that. You cannot know what comes in the future. But what you do, I do know is that if you're able to get the best out of your talent at any given time, opportunities will present themselves. Uh, so my legacy uh, after my time, I think, um, I hope that people would say that I helped them to be a better version of themselves and get out their full potential. To me, culture and people is really what leadership is about. Uh, I can influence the careers and lives of many people. Uh, so I hope uh, that my legacy will be that I um, I was able to provide opportunities and clarity and, and uh, direction for others and, and help them grow. I hope my legacy will say that I made a difference on, on climate change. This is something very personal to me. I hope my legacy will uh, say that I made a difference on diversity and inclusion and made sure that we created opportunities for all. Uh, and that we are bringing in diversity of minds and representation around the table. Um, and last but not least, I hope my legacy is that uh, we really took safety seriously and made sure that we did everything we could to avoid people getting hurt. That's the perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time, Lasse. It was a privilege having you on. Thank you so much.
If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called the Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Wohnheim. See you next time.